Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio. Our guest for the full hour is UCLA history professor Benjamin Madley. We will be discussing his impeccably researched book, An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873. It's a subject so graphic, violent, horrifying and difficult that listeners are advised that it is not suitable for the ears or spirits of children. Benjamin Madley is an historian of Native America, the United States, and genocide in world history. Born in Redding, California, Professor Madley spent much of his childhood in Currit country near the Oregon border, where he became interested in the relationship between colonizers and indigenous peoples. He writes about American Indians, as well as colonial genocides in Africa, Australia, and Europe, often applying a transnational and comparative approach. He is a professor of history at the University of California at Los Angeles. An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873, is his first book. It is published by Yale University Press. Professor Benjamin Madley, we welcome you to Forthright Radio. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. The place we now call California was unknown to non-Indians until March 1543, when Spaniards first explored the coast. But it wasn't until 226 years later in 1769 that Spain sent soldiers and Franciscan missionaries north from Mexico to colonize it, largely to preempt British, Dutch, and Russian expansion and to protect northern Mexico's silver mines. At that time, there were about 310,000 native people living here, which seems small compared to the current population of almost 40 million. But you write that it was actually the densest native population north of Mexico in North America. Please briefly tell us about this pre-European California population and how they lived on the land. California's natural bounty, coupled with California Indians' really ingenious ability to maximize and use that abundance, supported, as you mentioned, perhaps 310,000 people before the arrival of Europeans. Through environmental management, through hunting, through gathering, fishing, farming, and a variety of ways of processing foods, Indian people in California created, as you said, what may have been one of the most densely populated regions in North America in the years before Christopher Columbus first visited this hemisphere. To give you a sense of how diverse and dynamic this pre-contact world was, let me just touch on the issue of languages. So these hundreds of thousands of people spoke a dazzling array of tongues. Pre-contact North America, to give you some context, was an already diverse linguistic landscape. Let me put that into context. So indigenous people between the Rio Grande River and the Arctic Ocean spoke about 300 different languages. And these languages can be classified into more than 50 different language families. Now, in contrast, to put that into perspective, linguists classify Europe's languages into as few as just three families. So amid indigenous North America's already varied linguistic landscape, pre-contact California actually stands out as one of the most linguistically diverse places on the planet. California Indian people spoke, according to linguists, perhaps 
100 separate languages that these scholars classify into at least five different language families. And they were as different from each other as modern Chinese is from modern English. So speaking scores of different languages, California Indian people then created dozens of cultural and political entities. And anthropologists recognize at least 60 different major tribes in California that can in turn be subdivided into even more linguistic and tribal subgroups. For example, anthropologists classify the Pomo people north of San Francisco Bay into at least seven different subgroups, or the Yana people of the Southern Cascades east of the Sacramento River Valley into at least five subgroups. And then ultimately, all of these subgroups can be further divided into about 500 individual bands, what A.L. Kroeber called tribelets. Each of these villages or village constellations tended to act as its own politically and economically autonomous entities. So the indigenous peoples of California were highly independent but at the same time loosely bound together by larger tribal groups that shared languages and cultures. And to give your listeners a little sense of how they were bound together, if you look at a map of California, if you spread that out in your car on your kitchen table, and you look at the roots of our major interstates and our state highway systems, what you're essentially looking at there is a map of the pre-contact intertribal trade and travel route that linked the 60 major tribes of California to each other. Your book at the beginning goes into how they interacted with the land. They actually tended the wild as opposed to just being passive on it. But in the interest of times, we won't go into that. The Spanish enter the picture in 1769 with soldiers and missionaries, and what you call the Spanish system radically altered at least the coastal Indians of California. Talk about the Spanish system, please. The Spaniards visit several times before 1769, but beginning in 1769, Franciscan missionaries supported by Spanish soldiers begin to establish a network of 21 missions that ultimately will extend from San Diego in the south all the way up to San Francisco Solano Mission in what is now Sonoma. It's the final mission that was built in 1823, actually, under Mexican rule. The introduction of cattle and new pathogens and a variety of exotic species, in particular sheep, cattle, pigs, and horses, radically transformed California's environment and led to many California Indian people actually coming to the missions because their traditional food systems were uh, under threat. They were, they were being destroyed by these new animals and pathogens that were arising. And the mission experience for California Indian people uh, was very mixed. Um, Thousands of mission people fled in order to escape the conditions there, which were often lethal. In the year 1817, 4,000 people fled in that year alone. And their motives varied, but they were often leaving what was essentially a carceral system and a system in which corporal punishment was routine and in which their freedom was extremely limited. And ultimately, the missions had a devastating impact 
many California Indian people. If the missions baptized over 80,000 individuals, records tell us that over 60,000 of those people died in the missions, not only from sweeping epidemics, but also from the conditions of the missions, which weren't all that great. The other thing that happened during the Russo-Iberian period of colonization by the Russians, the Mexicans, and the Spaniards was that important precedents were set for maltreatment of California Indian people that the newcomers that came after the gold rush, citizens of the United States, and vast hordes of Europeans then built upon. And that's a crucial precedent that helps to explain the phenomenon of genocide between 1846 and 1873. And in fact, when we modern people hear someone is baptized, in fact, under the Spanish mission system, when a, an Indian was baptized, he became a ward of the missions, which meant that the mission was entitled to his labor. He was not allowed to leave without permission, that sort of thing. Could you expand on that very briefly? Because I want to get sure. on to the rest of the history. One of the major purposes that the Franciscans had in participating in the colonization of California under Spanish and then Mexican rule was, in their own words, to save souls. Junipero Espera spoke about a spiritual conquest that he wanted to carry out here in California. So Franciscan missionaries baptized California Indians, but often without California Indians understanding what baptism meant to the Franciscans and to Spanish and later Mexican authorities. And, and that was that baptized Indians legally put themselves under the Franciscans' physical authority, giving up the right to control the course of their own lives, their daily routines, or to lead the mission without permission. And there's a crucial turning point that establishes this. And very early on in 1773, Sarah traveled to Mexico City and lobbied for and received a decree from the Viceroy of New Spain and his royal council, which recognized that, and I'll quote this because it's so important, just as a father of a family has charge of his house and the education and correction of his children, the management, control, and education of the baptized Indians pertains exclusively to the mission fathers. What did this mean? It meant that by declaring baptized California Indians the legal wards of the Franciscans, Spanish authorities made them less than citizens. They made them second-class subjects. And as I said before, this is part of that process of establishing crucial legal and cultural precedents on which Mexican and later U.S. authorities were built. So after stripping California Mission Indians of rights, Spaniards then forced them into what often looks very much like an unfree labor system. In fact, some scholars have characterized California mission labor as unfree, and some have even called it slavery, as did some of the actual observers. California's governor, Felipe de Neve, wrote an official report in which he said that, and I quote, the Indian's fate is worse than that of slaves. Even Spanish officials recognized the highly problematic nature of the Franciscans' 
treatment of and policies towards California Indian people in the 21 mission. Now, you mentioned Father Junipero Serra. He's recently been canonized. There was quite a lot of resistance to his canonization. Do you care to briefly address that issue? It's not the focus of the book, but I will say that many California Indian people, including many California Indian people who describe themselves as Roman Catholics, found his beatification and later his canonization extremely disturbing. Sarah was himself someone who openly and repeatedly advocated the infliction of pain on California Indian people as a way of managing and controlling them. He thought that floggings were not only acceptable, but necessary. And he ordered floggings in some cases himself to be inflicted on California Indian people, particularly baptized people who were recaptured after attempting to flee the missions and return to their homelands. This is a contested legacy, of course, because as California Indian people themselves will tell you, the missions were not all bad. In the San Francisco Bay Area, for example, Ohlone people were protected sometimes by missionaries, as I've learned from speaking to Ohlone individuals. But it is true that the day after his canonization, found on his gravestone at Carmel, written in red paint with the words, Saint of Genocide. So it's a very contested and, and painful issue for many California Indian people. Although you have much more detail on the Hispanic-Russo occupation of what's currently California, let's move to 1846 when the U.S. takes over, first with martial law. And in the interest of time, let's talk about John C. Fremont and his March 1846 events around Lassen Ranch, which ended in the Sacramento River Massacre. And I would like to say that although your book covers the entirety of California and even into southern Oregon, for purposes of time, we are going to focus on the primarily coastal area north of San Francisco, with some going into the Central Valley. But let's talk about John C. Fremont. He wasn't even supposed to be in California then, right? That's right. We don't know for sure whether or not he received a secret order to travel to California, but he was blatantly disregarding his official orders in the spring of 1846. He'd actually been ordered to survey streams flowing east from the Rockies, and yet he pops up in California, a place that's under the control of Mexico. But he did have a personal meeting with U.S. President James K. Polk, in which the leader told him of his determination to acquire California. So he'd, he'd been to California before in 1843 to 1844 during an exploring expedition. And I think that he was trying to position himself to be at the right place at the right time, help facilitate the invasion of California and its acquisition by the United States. So he was in uh, the, the northern part of the Sacramento River Valley, when he received some sort of vague sense of a threat that Indian people might pose to local U.S. citizens then colonizing the area. And so he led his men, 
north up to a point somewhere near modern-day Reading, which is actually where I was born. And after sighting a group of Wintu people gathered on the banks of the Sacramento, he and his troopers did not attempt to negotiate. Instead, they launched a what seems to have been a premeditated massacre. According to one of the eyewitnesses, the order was given to ask no quarter and to give none. And the massacre, like so many California massacres, began with long-range small arms fire. According to another eyewitness, as soon as we got within rifle shot, they began to fall fast. What was happening was that Fremont's men were armed with something called the Hawkins rifle, which had an effective killing range of about 200 yards. And this meant that Fremont and his men could kill Wintu people from well beyond the range of their bows and arrows. So in so many massacres in California, overwhelmingly superior range meant that California Indians had a very difficult time protecting themselves and their communities because their arrows could not reach the attackers. In this massacre, again like many others, the attackers' rifle barrels probably became clogged with burned powder, and so they then closed the circle and moved closer in. Here they probably used pistols or musketoons, and once they'd fired all of those shots that they had quickly available, they closed for close-quarter killing. They began using their sabers, their pistols, and many of the men had butcher knives. And this characterized the third phase of many massacres in California. Finally, they proceeded to what I call in the book executionary killing. As Wintu people began to escape, or it seems try to surrender, Fremont and his men continued killing them. So some of them plunged into the Sacramento and tried to swim to the other side, and there they were shot down by sharpshooters. Others tried to flee east, moving toward the town of Shasta and toward the Trinity River, and there Kit Carson and others on horseback followed them and killed them with tomahawks as they tried to run away. And according to Kit Carson, it was a slaughter. What's important about this massacre in a way is that it's the first of its kind, but during the next 27 years, massacres like this would become common in California. Encirclement, surprise attack, an initial barrage of long-range small arms fire, this close-range attack, and finally executionary non-combatant killing would become a kind of unwritten tactical doctrine in California Indian hunting campaigns. So the Sacramento River Massacre of 1846 was then in many ways a prelude to literally hundreds of similar massacres and ultimately this larger American genocide. It's also a largely forgotten but absolutely huge catastrophe One eyewitness says there were 120 to 150 Indians killed that day. Another eyewitness says there were over 175 killed that day. But one of the eyewitness accounts that's never been published before that I found in the Bancroft Library comes from a man named Tustin. He had no professional interest, I think, in downplaying the number killed because he was just a volunteer who showed up that day. And here's what he said. The Indians killed was somewhere between six and 700 by actual count. And even beyond that, he specified, I am speaking of those killed on land, as we could not count those killed in the Sacramento River. But I have no doubt that there was fully two or 300 more. So 
If Tustin's estimates are accurate, Fremont's force may have killed as many as 1,000 California Indian men, women, and children in what may have been one of the single largest but least well-known massacres in all of United States history. And this was, as again, in 1846. That's a full two years before gold was found. And once gold was found, things were radically different. Before we go on to that, though, I just want to point out that by the time the U.S. took over in 1846, the Native population was down from over 300,000 before the Spanish got here to 150,000. And at that point, the non-European population in California was approximately 25,000. So gold is discovered. Then there is an influx of 80,000 immigrants within basically one year or two years at the most. Before the gold rush, the population of the Indians to the Europeans was about 10 to 1. But within a very short time, by the end of 1849, that ratio were fewer than two to one. So that is a huge imbalance, a very radical change in population, not to mention the technological differences that you've already mentioned, Professor Madley, in, in terms of killing capacity that the Americans had. You're calling this a genocide, an American genocide. That's a very, very, very a controversial term. Would you please take a moment or two to talk about what constitutes a genocide and why you are applying it in the case of California? Neither the United States government nor the government of the state of California has acknowledged that the California Indian catastrophe under United States rule fits the two-part legal definition of genocide set forth by the United Nations Convention in 1948. And there are really two parts to this convention. First, a prosecutor must prove that a perpetrator has demonstrated their, and I quote, intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So that's the first burden on the prosecutor. That's to prove intent to destroy. Second, the prosecutor must demonstrate that the perpetrator has committed at least one of the five genocidal acts specified in the convention. And the acts include, first, killing members of the group. Second, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Third, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and finally, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, why did I choose this particular definition? The reason that I chose this definition, the reasons are multiple. So first of all, this is international legal treaty that was arrived at unanimously by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948. And it has now been ratified by over 170 nations. Secondly, this is the definition that is most commonly used by scholars of genocide and by historians. Now, it has no juridical meaning for these events, because these events took place before the convention was created in the 20th century. But it is a very useful 
rubric of analysis that scholars can use to compare similar events across time and space. Ultimately, the UN Genocide Convention is not only been used in courts addressing genocides in Africa, Asia, and Europe, but it is also been used by scholars in order to better understand genocide so that we can have early detection, so that we can learn how to stop genocide out as, as it is happening, and so that we can understand how to pursue justice and community healing in the aftermath of genocide. I should inform the listeners that in addition to the text, there are hundreds of pages of appendices that give actual documentation of reports of non-specific numbers of California Indians killed on to five or more Indians killed. It also includes the reports of non-Indians killed by Californian Indians. This is a work of such historical significance that I don't even know how to describe it. You demonstrate in this book that it was not simply the action of individuals or even vigilantes, but mechanisms of both the California state government and the federal government that allowed the genocide to take place. Before we continue with the massacres in Clear Lake and Mendocino County and Round Valley and up in Humboldt County, I'd like you to take a moment and talk about the roles that both the state government and the federal government played in this. Under martial law, the United States military officers in charge of governing California made California Indian people into subjects with few or no rights, and they effectively legalized California Indian servitude without term limitation. They also set precedents by killing substantial numbers of California Indians. Then California's first elected state legislature convened in 1850s, and one of their very first orders of business in that year, 1850, was to ban all Indians from voting, barring those with one-half Indian blood or more from giving evidence for or against whites in all criminal cases, and denying Indians the right to serve as jurors. California legislators later banned Indians from serving as attorneys. In combination, these state laws largely shut indigenous people out of participation in and, crucially, protection by our state's legal system. And this amounted to a virtual grant of impunity to those who attacked them. That same year, also in 1850, state legislators endorsed unfree Indian labor by legalizing white custody of Indian minors and Indian prisoner leasing. And in 1860, legislators extended that 1850 Act to legalize the indenture of any Indian. What these laws did was to trigger a boom in extremely violent kidnappings. The slave raids themselves were often highly lethal. The slave raiders often killed all of the adult men, many of the adult women, and they tended to take away and sell women under 30 and teenagers and children. So that was genocidal in itself, the act of killing. But secondly, by separating men and women during peak reproductive years, they accelerated California's Indian population decline. But there's also a third highly destructive element of its unfree labor system. Many California Indians were treated as disposable laborers because they could be so cheaply replaced. One lawyer from Los Angeles recalled, and I'll quote this for you, Los Angeles had its slave mart 
and thousands of honest, useful people were absolutely destroyed in this way. Indeed, census records show us that between 1850 and 1870, Los Angeles's Indian population plummeted from 3,693 to just 219. But beyond just that legislation, I do not believe it is an exaggeration to say that California's elected legislators established a state-sponsored killing machine. California governors called out or authorized no fewer than 24 separate state militia expeditions between 1850 and 1861, which killed at an absolute minimum 1,340 California Indian people. Now, previous scholars have sometimes argued that these militiamen were rogue, that they were somehow out of control. But they were, in fact, supported by the states. Our state legislators passed three bills in the 1850s that raised up to $1.51 million to fund these operations, a truly massive amount of money at that time, not only for past militia operations, but also future militia operations against Indians. So by demonstrating that the state would not punish Indian killers, but instead reward them, militia expeditions helped inspire vigilantes kill at least 6,460 California Indian people between 1846 and 1873. Now, lest you think that this is simply a state gone rogue within the Union, this process was actually supported by the federal government. For example, the United States Congress actually voted to reimburse the state of California for the majority of the money that the state had spent on these militia expeditions. Meanwhile, the United States Army and their auxiliaries also killed at least 1,680 California Indian people between 1846 and 1873. And finally, I just want to make one more point, which is to go back to the element of intent. State endorsement of genocide particularly by California's elected officials, was only very thinly veiled. For example, in 1851, our state's first elected civilian governor, Governor Peter Burnett, declared to both houses, the Assembly and the Senate of California, publicly that, and I quote, a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. Unless you think that Peter Burnett is a rogue, the very following year, Senator John Weller, later became California's governor, went even further. He told his fellow United States senators in Washington, D.C., that California Indians, and I quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And Weller argued that the interest of the white man demands their extinction. And you have so many citations in newspapers, etc., of the use of the term extermination and annihilation. The documentation, as I said at the beginning, is impeccable. I prefaced this entire discussion by admonishing people not to allow children to hear this because it is so horrifying. But imagine what the children of these times experienced having their parents murdered so they could be abducted and taken for labor. And you quote that in Ukiah, this is a quote, few families did not have one to three Indian children. This is very close to home. Now let's go even closer to home. In our listening area, uh, Lake County, in parts of Humboldt County, Sonoma County, Mendocino County, obviously, is in our listening area. And you describe as a turning point 
the killing campaigns of December 1849 to May 1850 in Clear Lake. And particularly, you talk about Charles Stone and Andrew Kelsey. Let's talk about those incidents. Who were Charles Stone and Andrew Kelsey? And what were the legitimate grievances that the Pomo people had with them? Charles Stone and Andrew Kelsey were Anglo-American ranchers based at the spot on the west side of Clear Lake near what is now Kelseyville. And they were probably both bear flaggers, early Anglo-American settlers in California. And they either purchased or leased a very massive cattle ranch over there on the west side of Clear Lake. They treated their Eastern Pomo and Clear Lake Wapo employees essentially as unfree laborers with very few or no rights. One of the typical punishments was to tie a Clear Lake Wapo or Eastern Pomo person's thumbs together with a rope and then hang them up so that their toes just touch the ground and leave them there without food or water overnight. And the infractions that could trigger such a punishment were really surprisingly small. California Indian oral histories of these events tell us that some people were beaten to death, some people were shot. Whites who visited them saw that these men sometimes killed people just for entertainment, and they routinely sexually assaulted females in their employment. So California Indian people there ended up rising up and and killing them in December of 1849. And this marked a crucial turning point toward a larger genocide. In response to this double homicide, vigilantes and United States Army soldiers killed as many as a thousand Indian people or more between December 1849 and May of 1850. So vigilantes first murdered and massacred large numbers of indigenous people in the Napa and Sonoma Valley. And actually, some people stood up for Indians in this area, and they arrested the vigilantes and, and brought them to California's Supreme Court. And in its very first trial ever, our state Supreme Court let these eight murderers go on bail and never sought to try them. But much more devastating, the U.S. Army also sought to avenge the deaths of Stone and Kelsey. In an article titled Horrible Slaughter of Indians, San Francisco's newspaper described one of the massacres committed by the U.S. Army during this campaign, a massacre at a place now known as Bloody Island on Clear Lake. And they used information provided by a United States Army captain. They fell as grass before the sweep of the scythe. Little or no resistance was encountered, and the work of butchery was of short duration. Neither sex nor age was spared. It was the order of extermination, fearfully obeyed. Hundreds of people, maybe 600, maybe even as many as 800 people, may have died in this atrocity. Other killings followed. The U.S. Army and cavalry and artillery units then went over the ridge into the Russian River Valley and committed another major massacre near Ukiah, and possibly another one further south down the river. And what is so staggering about this is that the officers involved were not censured. In fact, they were promoted. Several of them became generals, 
and one of them later became governor of the state of California. The reason that it was a turning point was that a new factor really was at work. Large-scale, extended vigilante and United States Army killing campaigns that were tolerated both by state and by federal authorities. Well, not just tolerated, but actually organized. Major General Percival Smith, who was a veteran of the Seminole and Mexican Wars, was involved in this. But to put some perspective on the situation, the reason that Stone and Kelsey had control over a large number of these Pomo Indians is because since the Spanish system, when land was transferred, the people on the land were transferred as well in a pretty much semi-feudal surf kind of situation. And the ecology of the region was completely altered. Stone and Kelsey brought 15,000 cattle and 2,500 horses onto that range, which had formerly been kind of oak savanna and that supported the Pomo population there. So they were forced by those changes to be bound to Kelsey and Stone. I just want to add one other thing that's helpful to understand, which is that for California's indigenous people, sacred sites are very important. And unlike in the Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition, where a holy site can be built anywhere, one of the reasons that people tended not to leave was that they did not want to leave their sacred sites and they did not want to leave their ancestors behind. So that made it difficult for them to go. But I also just want to emphasize that escape was a way that California Indian people defied servitude, but that escape was also difficult because whites sometimes responded with overwhelmingly lethal force. And, and I can talk about that if you'd like, but I just I do want people to understand the complexity of what bound unfree California Indian laborers on these ranchos and farms. Then go ahead if that's the direction you want to go. Sure. Well, I, you know, one of the things that I want to say about all of this is that despite the horror of this history, this kind of dark specter that hangs over California history, as historian Willie Bauer put it, there's also something quite miraculous and amazing about California Indian survival, the tenacity, uh, the will to survive, the ability to survive against all but impossible odds. Somebody who's from the Northwest Coast, the Lassie Wailaki woman, Lucy Young, she escaped servitude multiple times. Uh, One time, I believe, even hacking through a chain with a hatchet. She'd been chained to a cast iron stove. And she recollected young woman been stole by white people, come back, shot through lights and liver, front skin hang down like apron. She tie up with cotton dress, never die, neither. And that's kind of an example of the incredible fortitude that people had, the will to survive. But sadly, others were much less fortunate. After one California Indian woman fled in 1858, whites followed her to her village and massacred 15 people. Two years later, on the Van Dusen River, also on the northwest coast, one white man became so incensed after his Indian servant left to visit his family, just half a mile away. But he slaughtered the whole family, six people, the boy and everyone else. 
So that, that just gives you a sense of what wasn't easy to escape. If, if you tried to escape, you might be putting in jeopardy not only your family, but possibly your entire village. Talk about the Mendocino Reservation. California Indian people routinely resisted removal to reservations, but civilians and officials carried out large removal operations to them. Or I'll give you an example from your area. In 1856, vigilantes massacred 55 Indian people in the process of forcibly removing one group to the Mendocino Reservation. And Indian people recollected the horror of these forced removals. The Nomlaki man, Andrew Freeman, later explained how when Indian people were being driven to Round Valley Reservation, they were treated like stock, and older people, elders who could not make the trip were shot. He also explained that they would shoot children just for getting tired. And once they arrived at reservations, California Indian people often encountered a system that institutionalized lethal malnutrition. The Concow leader, Tomeyanem, recollected that after volunteers had forced his people to the reservation in Mendocino, they were very hungry, and he wrote that the Concows began to die very fast. And other reservations were little better. Just a few years later, in 1860, Tomeyanem relocated his people down to the Round Valley Reservation, which you mentioned, where he wrote there was even less to eat. And the starvation conditions were really staggering. Official reports tell us that Round Valley Indians were provided 480 to 910 calories per day at Round Valley, but only if they were working. And by 1862, those daily rations had fallen to just 160 to 390 calories per person per day. Further diminishing these inadequate rations, as I said before, those who did not work were inadequately fed, if at all. And what's quite amazing about this is that at this time, Round Valley Reservation possessed hundreds of cattle. They also had other animals as well, but Indians there were not allowed any meat. What's important about this in the context of the argument that genocide took place was that if some reservation inmates died of institutionalized starvation, malnutrition predictably weakened the immune systems of many others, making them susceptible to lethal diseases. Of course, these conditions also depressed fecundity and increased miscarriages and stillbirths. Now, while all of that was going on, some reservation officials and colonists used reservation Indians as unpaid laborers with lethal results. According to one colonist, about 300 people died during the winter of 1856 to 1857 from the results of using them essentially as pack animals. These people had almost no clothing. Many of them worked naked, and they were forced to carry 50 pounds each if they were able. So federal employees were responsible for inflicting conditions of willful neglect that took an untold number of California Indian lives on our reservations. I do not notice you're having included this in your book, American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873. But elsewhere, I have heard it said that both in the Boer War in South Africa and under the Third Reich, the Indian reservation system, which was actually called a concentration camp, you have at least one citation of that in your book, were modeled, the concentration camps in both the World War and in Nazi Germany, were modeled on the American Indian reservation system. 
And many of us feel quite superior to the Nazi Germans, but we have to face that these are the historical realities in our own history. And Professor Madley, you have done us all a tremendous service by documenting it the way that you have. I'm going to give you the remaining three minutes to just take it from here. And folks, you're going to have to read the book yourself to get the details. Thank you. Well, I think that's a very important question. I'm not sure that I know the answer to it, but what I can say is that it's beyond doubt that state and federal government officials should acknowledge the genocide that took place here in California. And I'll tell you why I think that's true. First of all, I believe that decency demands that even long after the deaths of these tens of thousands of victims, we preserve the truth of what happened to them so their memory can be honored and also so that the repetition of similar crimes will be deterred. Second, I believe that justice demands that even long after the perpetrators have vanished, we have got to document the crimes that they and their advocates have all too often concealed, denied, or very successfully suppressed. Third and finally, historical veracity. Of course, I am an historian. Historical veracity demands that we acknowledge this state-sponsored catastrophe in all of its varied aspects and causes because we ought to better understand formative events in both California Indian and California state history. I think that there are explosive issues directly connected to the question of genocide. And while it's going to be up to California Indian individuals and California Indian tribes and the people of the state of California to determine the best way forward, I just want to suggest what some of those questions are. Will state officials here or public officials in the federal government acknowledge this genocide? Will they offer reparations? Should the state or the federal government offer compensation along the lines of the more than $1.6 billion that Congress has paid out to the 82,000-plus Japanese Americans and their heirs who were forcibly interned during the Second World War? Will the state and federal governments return control to California Indian communities of the lands where these genocidal events took place? And should the state and federal government stop commemorating the supporters and perpetrators of this genocide, including Peter Burnett and Kit Carson and John C. Fremont, men whom we've all just spoken about? Will the genocide against California Indian people join the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust in public school curricula or in our national public discourse? These are crucial questions, but Again, as I said before, what I think is beyond doubt is that state and federal officials should finally acknowledge the genocide that took place here in California between 1846 and 1873. I very much thank you for your work, Professor Madley, and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been UCLA history professor Benjamin Madley. We have been discussing his book, An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873, published by Yale University Press. 
Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production. Engineer, Rich Culbertson. I'm Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of this station's staff, board of directors, or members. We end today's Forthright Radio with the wise and compassionate words of the late, great Native American poet and activist John Trudell from his superb final CD, DNA, Descendant, Now Ancestor. What happened to the tribes of Europe? By the time Columbus got here in 1492, see, people have many opinions about him, who he was or what he was, but Whatever, see, he was really like the virus. The spirit was being eaten by disease, and it affected the perceptional reality of the human. When Columbus and them got here, and we told them who we were, they didn't know. We said, well, we're the people, we're the human beings. But they didn't know, because it wasn't a part of their perceptional reality. The concept was no longer a part of their perceptional reality. See, this is what happened to the tribes of Europe, and the descendants of the tribes of Europe. And so I know... That by the time Columbus got here, and I, I got a pretty good idea way before that, but, but by the time Columbus got here, the idea of a human being and people in that kind of a way was no longer a part of their perceptional reality. But what did Columbus come out of? See, when he got here, this hemisphere had no protection to this disease because it had never been here like that. <laughs> so there was no immune system to the disease as it moved because the disease came through the wind and the water. So it was airborne in a way and water carried. So it just took the shape of a man rather than something you can't see. But it arrived. All right? And this spirit that was being eaten, which made this diseased perception of reality. All right, let's look. About 1100 A.D. or 1000 A.D., the church made the decision that it was God's government. It was the authority of God on earth. So it was God's government. And at that time, the descendants of the tribes of Europe no longer remembered that they come from tribes. This wasn't really a part of their conscious reality. Because by 1000 AD, see, they had been owned by, <laughs> they'd been owned for many, many, many generations by, by whoever claimed ownership of the land and started owning the land. And then they became thieves and they became serfs and they became peasants. So they really had no reality about being a part of the tribe anymore because they were just the property that was owned like whoever the landlord was or the royalty at any given time that owned that land or claimed that land. They belonged that land like all of the other natural resources of the land. But they still prayed to spirits. The women still had a, a, a stronger role yet from the old tribal way and they still prayed to spirits. So the church by 1000 AD or 1100 AD it decided that it was now going to mine this resource, save the souls of the heathen, see. So the church created the Inquisition, and basically the Inquisition was, number one, is it was to change the perceptional reality of the descendants of the tribes of Europe. Right? And so they were terrorized and brutalized for 500 years in order to do this. But the way the church rationalized this was they were going to save, they wanted to possess the souls of the heathens and the pagans. See, they wanted to possess their souls in the name of, of their Lord. This war was about possessing the souls of the descendants of tribes of Europe. And in order to possess their souls, they had to alter their perceptional reality. So if you thought differently than the church wanted you to think, bingo, you were, you were killed. You were tortured and your property was taken. And if somebody accused you, basically you were guilty if you were accused. You don't know, incidentally, during the torturing process, you'd probably say somebody else's name. So now somebody else is going to... Kind of, so they killed as efficiently as they possibly could with the technology they had at hand at the time. 
And they did it for 500 years. By the time Columbus got here, it had been going on for 400 years. So by the time Columbus got here, let's say 20 years to a generation for the lifespan during that time frame. So by the time Columbus got here, the descendants of the tribes of Europe had been through 20 generations of having their spirit just completely attacked. And the way this possessed thing kind of just seems to manifest itself. So they became spiritually and physically now the possession of something else. Before that, it was just physically. Now they had become spiritually the possession of someone else. So they had no clarity about reality. So by the time Columbus got here, see, they didn't know what it meant to be a human being anymore. It was just not a part of their spiritual perceptual relationship to reality. They were possessed, they were owned, they were property. And one of the other things about this that kind of evolved out of that, I think it evolved out of that, was anyway, when the church was doing all of this to get the descendants of the tribes of Europe, they finally figured out, well, hold it, if I want to stay alive and be a descendant of anything, I'm going to have to accept these people. (laughs) So they embraced the church because they had to embrace what they feared. So they had to love what they feared in order to survive. And the thing that they had to love that they feared was possessing them. So it's like love and fear and possession as a perceptual reality kind of became intertwined at that time. And the human beings have not been able to sort it out yet. So that affected everyone in some kind of a way that's not been healthy for us as human beings. So anyway, anything and all of these things that have happened to us through our generational evolution has been a learning experience and has been a part of our evolutionary experience. But I think that we're in the right place at the right time, even if we don't quite get it. There's a reason we're here. That's why us, in the lives that we have lived that brought us to this place and that we will live when we leave this place, there's a reason that we're here. I know we're here at the right time and we're in the right place. How are we going to start perceiving reality? And that's just really where it starts to become more clear. Out of self-respect, we owe it to ourselves. Out of respect of self, we owe it to the selves of others. Let's use our intelligence as intelligently as we can, as often as we can, right? It's not even saying all the time, but maybe we get there someday. To understand there are moments in our lives, there are times in our lives when coherency would probably be the best thing to do (laughs) before one deals with what's there in front of them. Because a part of this confusion that I call this pollution that's left over in our perceptual reality, see, has got to do is they don't want us to think. Okay, this is the deal. Whoever this miner is... (laughs) The way this thing works, they don't want us to think. I mean, I didn't really understand it. I knew this, but I didn't understand it. I knew this a long time ago because at one point when I realized somewhere along the way that there was like these 17,000 pages of stuff on me, right? And I thought, hold it here. What did I do? Because I know what I did. (laughs) I know how I participated. And just once it sunk into me about all of this had been done around someone like me, right? And it made me think, well, I understand what they fear now. I mean, I know what they fear. I know their paranoia. Because sometimes I can be coherent. See, and they, they don't like that. Right? They don't like it when I'm coherent in front of people because then we're coherent together. See, whether we agree with one or another or not isn't the point. They just don't want us to be coherent individually or together. Right? And so that's really what I figured out. This is why they have to have people spying on people and they got to do all because they don't want us thinking. They don't want us thinking. I mean, in the hypothetical, if every human being woke up tomorrow morning and said, all right, I will not enable what I know to be the lie all day today, it would change. It could not function. If every human being got up tomorrow and said, I will not enable it, I will not participate in the lie today, it would change. 
See, but that's not going to happen in, the, in our lifetime, right? Well, I don't know. I should never say never, but I don't see it. <laughs> but anyway, about us being in the right place and in the right time, because in our place in the evolution, it's how we use our intelligence that says, because no one can control what's going to happen. Even those in authority, they can't control it. They've got us intimidated and they've distorted our perceptional realities, all right, so that we don't see as clearly as we should. But no one can really control it. But what we can do and what we will do, all right, is we will influence the evolution. We will influence if we use our intelligence as clearly and coherently as we can, as often as we can, then the evolutionary future will be more clear and coherent for us. If we use it pretending to think, but we're not really thinking, then that means the evolutionary future will be unclear and unthinking. See, this is the participation, because this is the power relationship we have to reality. Just like an earthquake has, you know, an earthquake or a tornado. Remember now, we are shapes of the earth, and we have consciousness, and we have being, we have essence. So it's like we're drops of rain, and enough drops of rain get together, you know, and you get a little, you can make a real storm. And the authoritarian system has to adjust to the storm. They can't find it or indict it. When it snows, the next time you get shut in in Chicago, remember your relationship to power because you're a snowflake. All right? And once we understand our relationship to power, then, then this other thing that is the wind, this other thing, right, it appears. It works individually or collectively. But see, but we have to understand to use our intelligence. How good are we at creating with our intelligence? Then let's look at our own personal dark sides and the things that give us our fears and our doubts. This is how good we can use our creative ability. This is how effectively we could use it. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.